1999 The Podcast is a production of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts on movies, comics, and all things pop culture, head to cageclub.me. To contact us with questions, comments, or just to say hi, send us an email at 1999 at cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB and Joey at SoulPopped. And you can follow the show on Twitter at 1999thepodcast. To support the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by us. Hello and welcome to 1999 The Podcast. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm John Brooks. And we are talking about the darkest, most sinister, most twisted director this side of the night Shyamalan in his only G-rated film. (laughs) I'm sure we will talk about this with our guests in the episode, but John, what is your, do you have a history with David Lynch? Are you a David Lynch head? Do you like his movies? Do you hate his movies? I don't know this about you. Mm, um, We will talk about this. I, uh, I have a very hit and miss relationship with David Lynch. I think that's what I would have guessed. Okay. Mm -hmm. I love Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. And I'm very iffy about most other things that he's done. By the time this episode comes out, between now and then, I will have gone to the Double R Diner or whatever it's called, and hopefully, also, the Falls, the actual Falls from the opening of the movie. You're going to Washington State? I am. Washington State and Colorado. I used to hike one of said Twin Peaks quite frequently. Uh, I've been to that diner many a times, and I've been to those Falls many a times. Do you know... Yeah. There is, I don't know if it's a national chain or maybe just a Texas thing. There is like a Hooters like restaurant called Twin Peaks. And so <laughs> when I was living in Texas and they're like, you know, I, I would just see like restaurants around Twin Peaks. I'm like, oh, that's so wild that like a kind of cult, but now beloved fan favorite show yeah. somehow spawned a restaurant. And then I looked it up. I'm like, oh, okay. I yeah. Went. I should have gone. Like, <laughs> if it was Hooters, but like Red Room theme. Amazing. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think it's just I don't, like... I don't think it is. I don't but, think Texas you know. is that is that clever. Uh, North Bend is a very lovely town. I love it there. Um, I don't think anything remotely scary or interesting has really ever happened there. But mm. beautiful place. And uh, yeah, have a good time. We'll talk about it when you get back. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to talk about The Straight Story? I uh, Is that today's movie? The that Straight is today's story? movie. That's what we're doing? Oh, cool. Yeah. The Straight Story was released in the United States in October 1999. There's a little bit blurry dates. There's, you know, festival releases and theater releases and limited Mm -hmm. releases and so on and so forth after a run of film festival screenings. Directed by renowned filmmaker David Lynch, the movie tells a true story of Alvin Straight, an elderly World War II veteran living with his intellectually disabled daughter. Because this is a, pardon the pun, pretty straightforward production story, John, can you tell us what the movie's about before I go any further? You basically just did. (laughs) I know. I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's the true-ish story of Alvin Street. I mean, I think they take some liberties and obviously invent some conversations and that sort of thing. But a real-life figure who, at the age of 73, traveled across the Midwest on a ride-on mower to visit his estranged brother in Wisconsin after he suffers a stroke. And in the movie, he, along the way, meets a bunch of people and talks to a bunch of people. And that is pretty much the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Which is funny, and I'll get to it later. I have it here. But David Lynch calls this his most experimental film because it is... That's the so interesting. Experimental thing, yeah. But, you know, yeah. Well, I think that's something to be said for that. But yeah, we'll, yeah, for we'll sure. get to that. Mm-hmm. 
So originally, producer Ray Stark had acquired the rights to the story and envisioned it as a Paul Newman film. Nothing ever came of that, though. And when the rights became available, David Lynch's longtime partner. So you were asking me about like you were saying today about like, I think this is such a straightforward production story. And you said something along the lines of like, but why is David Lynch involved? And here again, very simple, straightforward had this longtime partner and collaborator, Mary Sweeney. Right. She's just like, I like the story. Let's do it. So she co-wrote the script with her childhood friend, Joan Roach. They are initially inspired by an article about Alvin Strait's remarkable journey, which resonated with her. Quote, growing up in Wisconsin, I easily connected with that kind of stoic, nonverbal, stubborn, idiosyncratic American character. I get how hard it is to have quiet pride and dignity when you're old and poor and living in the middle of nowhere. I understand what these people's dreams and frustrations are, and I loved how much of his journey captured the national imagination so wearing my producer's hat, I started trying to secure the rights. So it's just like, she liked the story, he liked the story, they did it. Mm-hmm. Richard Farnsworth, a first choice for the role of Alvin Strait, accepted the role despite battling terminal cancer at the time. Farnsworth, a longtime actor and stuntman, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the film Comes a Horseman and a Golden Globe nomination for The Grey Fox. More on him in a little bit. Filming took place independently along the actual route taken by Strait with scenes shot chronologically in autumn of 98. The production faced challenges as Farnsworth health declined during filming, but he remained dedicated and tenacious. Tragically, he passed away the following year. Farnsworth is joined on screen by Sissy Spacek, who plays his daughter, and Harry Dean Stanton, who plays his brother and only appears in the film's final minutes. Longtime Lynch collaborator Everett McGill, Chris Farley's brothers Kevin and John, and returning 1999 the podcast all star James Kata. Kata, do you know mm, who this man is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brady Murphy's father from, in yes, Drop the Gorgeous. Drop the Gorgeous. That's right. Yep. Fill out the cast of largely non actors. Angelo Badalamenti, a longtime collaborator of David Lynch, composed yeah. the film's score. The film earned a G rating, a rarity for a Lynch film, after a successful debut at Cannes, where it earned a Palme d'Or nomination. It was acquired by Walt Disney Pictures for release in the United States. It would go on to garner other awards, too, including an Oscar nomination for Farnsworth, who was the oldest nominee in the category at the time. But he, like almost every other nominee. Okay. side note, I remember what year we're doing, but every time I do one of these intros and we get an Oscar nomination, I'm like, oh, what won that year? I still don't remember. The answer is always going to be American Beauty. American Beauty. Mm-hmm. Every single time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I wonder what won. Oh, right. So he, like everything else, lost American Beauty. He did, Farnsworth, however, win at the Independent Spirit Awards and the New York Film Critics Circle, and Lynch won a couple of smaller directorial awards as well. The Straight Story wasn't especially commercially successful. It finished 147th in the 1999 box office, earning $6 million on a $10 million budget, with virtually no overseas box office at all, but it was critically acclaimed, especially as it seemed out of the norm for Lynch, who would go on to call it his, quote, most experimental film, as I said earlier. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, the first positive review he'd ever given for a film by Lynch, writing, quote, <laughs> The movie isn't just about the old Alvin Strait's odyssey through the sleepy towns and rural districts of the Midwest, but about the people he finds to listen and care for him. Um, Ebert. <laughs> it reminds me of something very funny that David Lynch once did, which is that Eber. So Lost Highway came out in 96 or 97? 97. 97. So two years earlier, uh, Ebert, as his, as his want to do, uh, <laughs> banned Lost Highway um, because he hates all of David Lynch's movies. And 
you know the like full page you know newspaper splashes of movies with the poster and then the mm-hmm. quote from the from the critics um lynch personally like had the uh the bad review pull quote from roger ebert like plastered across the lost highway uh ad it was uh it was very funny well that's like you know now in theaters although it's it'll still be in theaters by the time this comes out but like they're not using those official marketing promotion but someone on twitter i'm sorry x um found or is pulling negative reviews one star reviews from let- male letterbox users about barbie and yeah. putting it under the barbie title on a poster and just like it just makes it better just like yeah they want us all to be women it's just like yeah okay sure that sounds like a cool. great marketing campaign for the movie <laughs> marketing's fun sure anyway Ebert was not alone. The film has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes based on more than 100 reviews, a 91% audience score, and an 86 on Metacritic. Wow. Wow. Several critics called it Lynch's best work since Blue Velvet, which means that they liked it more than Lost Highway and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and Wild at Heart. (laughs) And a lot of movies that I also really love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Scott Tobias of the AV Club proclaimed Lynch, quote, discovered the pure mythical slice of Americana previously confined to Agent Cooper's coffee and donuts in Twin Peaks. Slate's David Edelstein said Lynch, quote, slowed the world down and got back in touch with it. Glenn Lavelle Mm. of the San Jose Mercury News called it, quote, easily the best American film of the year. I had to hunt for a while to see what our boys at TNT Rough Cut thought about it. (laughs) I think I found it, and I think they gave it a mixed review saying it was too slow. Not rough enough? Not rough enough. I did not find that on Rotten Tomatoes. I had to find that in Metacritic, and they didn't have a full review, so who knows where that actually exists. (laughs) Too many gentle cuts for them. Only two of Rotten Tomatoes' top critics gave it negative reviews. The Los Angeles Times' Kenneth Turan called it, quote, too mannered and weird around the edges to be convincing. Kenneth Turan? No! New York Magazine's Peter Rayner called Lynch a tourist as he struggled to reckon with the film as both a film and as a David Lynch film. Mm, That's interesting. I'm not sure why I chose to end the intro on a down note because this is one of my favorite (laughs) films we'll cover for this podcast. So without any further ado, John, who is our guest to talk about the straight story? Our guest is pop culture critic and movie critic and fan, Julia Sermons. Well, we will be right back with Julia. And we're back, and we're here with Julia. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? We are, we are, we are very well. Uh, thank you for joining us. I, I did the briefest of introductions of you in the intro, but um, would you care to introduce yourself in your own <laughs> in your own words? Uh, yeah, briefly. Um, I'm just a film writer, I guess I'd say, and uh, normally write about kind of spectacle and stuff in film, whether that's like movie musicals or melodrama mm-hmm. or uh, you know production design or horror. Um, so this is a cool chance to do something a little bit different. Yeah. Before we go further about this, we are we're recording a little bit early. This isn't going to be out for about a month or so, but we are in the week of spectacle. We are in the Barbenheimer week. <laughs> Any thoughts on Barbenheimer? Have you seen Barbie and or Oppenheimer yet? I actually haven't because I um, uh, 
I'm living in kind of rural-ish Colorado right now, mm, and okay. uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for a chance to have access to a car, the car. <laughs> the one you could always I take can... a, a lawnmower to go see. Yeah. Good. <laughs> there's no excuse to go to not go anywhere because of a car if there's a lawnmower available. <laughs> you know, there is one that was very noisy outside this morning, so I could totally steal it and you... go to the Bowtie Cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, losers, I'm going to go see Barbie and then just <laughs> speed away at five miles an hour. I have yes. to do this my own way. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, I asked this of John in the opening, and he gave me a very cryptic answer. But what is your history with David Lynch? What is your history with this film? When was the first time you saw that? What was the first of his you saw? Just wherever you want to go with this, your history with the man of the hour and also this film. Um, so I became a film a studies major in college pretty quickly. And we had this great movie theater on campus. And so I'm pretty sure I saw it there. They did, they would do different programs and they had a David Lynch, you know, retrospective where you could see everything. And I, I'm sorry to say, I, as I fancied myself a very dark and twisty person in college and <laughs> surrounding myself with similar people, I kind of dismissed it, you know, uh, as opposed to the others, which like were very stylized and cool. Yeah. And um, I have not seen it again since this week. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Do you remember your first Lynch film? So I'm trying to figure that out too for me because I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Mulholland Drive because I, I watched sense. that. I rented that on DVD um, before. <laughs> what I the hell is that? <laughs> I remember watching it in my like little on my little TV. I was left yeah. in my room, and uh, that is actually... also that is also how I first saw Mulholland Drive. I rented it on DVD and watched it in college. Uh, okay. A, can I ask you, did your DVD copy have the little insert, which is like, here's how you can figure out what this movie's about. And there no. were like 10 questions. No, <laughs> I've seen that. No, it's great. Like David Lynch is like, if you watch the intro, you can pick up 10 clues in the first 90 seconds. And I'm like, bullshit, you cannot. <laughs> like that, that might be my favorite movie. Like, I, I don't even know if it's my favorite Lynch movie, but that's also might be my favorite movie. But I'm like, there's nothing in there. Come on. What are we doing? What are we talking about? Here? Yeah. Well, I was young and dumb enough to like really try. I like it was like a little tryhards. So I like really wanted to figure it out, I, and then it took me a couple of years to realize that's not how you are meant to experience this movie. No, I was just like, yeah, I get it. Sure, it's a good movie. <laughs> I, I I think I had a lot of people who were doing that with like Donnie Darko at the time, being like, here's my map of how Donnie Darko is to be interpreted. And I'm like, eh, whatever, sure, fine. I guess that's yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I guess we do that on Twitter now. I, I don't know. <laughs> Julia, I please call it X. X. Yeah. <laughs> it's not referred to it by its dead name. Yeah. <laughs> Julia, were you uh were you a Twin Peaks person or did you not get at all into David Lynch until until your college days? No, I was a little too young for Twin Peaks. Okay. I found out my parents watched it. Yeah. And I was like, were you were that cool in the eighties? And they're like, Well, we watched it until it got too weird. <laughs> so four episodes in yeah. so i watched that i i really i think i only really watched it when it was it became streaming on hulu actually so nice. relatively yeah. late but it was like a delightful treat too i was too young too but i still watched it <laughs> was picket fences like twin peaks but less dark kind of yeah my, my parents watched that 
And they yeah. watched like other stuff I feel like was in the Twin Peaks kind of like realm, but I almost guarantee you they did not watch Twin Peaks. Yeah. It was less weird. I mean, Twin Peaks was mostly weird more than it was dark, right? It, That's it, sort of David I Lynch. mean, it's pretty Okay, let's talk about the premise of the show. <laughs> yeah, sure, 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 sure. But like I think dark, I think like David Fincher, right? Like Lynch is like well, it's he, it's supernaturally dark, which is a different like kind of dark, right? Foggy. Like it's a different yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. John, um, you want to elaborate on your cryptic answer in the opening? Yeah, sure. I like so. My brother watched Twin Peaks. I watched Twin Peaks with him. You have I a guess, brother? Yeah. Wow, learning so much. <laughs> I have an older brother uh, who I older. saw a lot of movies with when I was a teenager. And a lot of the stuff that I probably was like too young to be watching, I watched because he watched. Um, I I will probably, I would say I was around like 11 or 12-ish when Twin Peaks was happening. Like early, like early, early 90s. I don't remember. But um, yeah, I like Twin Peaks. I like David Lynch. I like the whole sort of like weird mysterious vibe um then when i was a little older like in high school i think i saw like blue velvet which i didn't love and i didn't really like a lot of his his movies they were just a little too i don't know a little too out there for me but i did see when i was so lost highway came out when i was 18 and i I did see that uh and really liked that a lot I like to fire walk with me. I don't know. It's just always been like, I've never been able to kind of all in on David Lynch. And I think that's kind of also a a feature of David Lynch. Like part of what kind of of makes him interesting is that you never really know if you're going to jive with what he's doing. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, I like Mulholland Drive a lot. Um, I, yeah, but this is, I like to me, somehow this is like his not just best movie, but, in rewatching it today, I saw a lot more of those kind of Lynchian elements that I kind of missed the first time I watched it, um, and I, I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But like, uh, Joey, when when did you like? I know you love David Lynch. I think you're the biggest Lynch Lynchy. Lynch-y yeah, I'm of the mind he's basically Lynch-ian? made like eight Lynch-ian? perfect movies and then also Dune. Yeah. Like I, you know, I it's, it's hard for me to rank. <laughs> Because like, I, I love them all so much. Like like two years ago, I rewatched Twin Peaks and I watched all of his movies. And like, I, I love this movie so much. I think I was looking, I was trying to find out the first, because like Julia, when I went to college, like I'd basically seen like no movies and I watched like all of the movies for the first and kind of only time I've seen most of these movies. So here's my little run. Straight Story's not in here, but I, I saw it in a row, probably the in like two or three weeks for the first, remember for the first time. Ghostbusters, E.T., Rushmore, Dawn of the Dead, Die Hard, Wild at Heart, Full Metal Jacket, the Simpsons movie, okay. Blue Velvet, <laughs> Blood Sample, Inland Empire, Wow, Eraserhead, The Shining. Mm-hmm. Like that was all in like three weeks for the first important, time. Important question, was it the original Dawn of the Dead? Yes, it was the original Dawn of the Dead. I like both of them, but that was the original Dawn of the Dead. I have in yeah. parentheses yeah. original. But then I saw The Straight Story when I, I like kind of filled out the rest of his filmography like a year or so later. Like I watched Eraserhead. Uh, no, I saw Eraserhead. Uh, like Elephant Man and this and whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I I love Twin Peaks. I love the vibe of it. I think what's special about this, and you know, I talked about this a little bit in the intro, is that like this is so very much David Lynch, but without that like slight twist or turn that makes you uncomfortable. Like there are moments in this you're like, oh, he's gonna do it, and then he doesn't. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And I think that's what makes this really kind of special and wholesome and just wonderful and like. <laughs> 
you know, with Oppenheimer out in theaters, and I want to compare Lynch to Christopher Nolan just because they're two, you know, directors, but like I feel like I love Interstellar because it's the one of his that like makes me feel emotions. Like it makes me feel like he's like he's going for something. Which is rare for Christopher Nolan. Yeah. And here it's like it's not the same thing, but like this there's like that same kind of like where David Lynch has like one sort of speed and I'm not using it as a negative because I love it. But then this is like, he's doing something different and like, it makes it stand out because it's like, Oh, that's, you can tell it's him, but it's something different. Yeah. About, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, so wonderful and special. And just, I just love that. Like there's a David Lynch movie on Disney plus. That's like, <laughs> that's like yeah, yeah, kids, you know, maybe shouldn't watch, but like could watch, you know what I mean? So They'd be bored to tears, but like, yes, they could watch it. That's true. But I just love it. Well, you said you talked about the G rating, Mm -hmm. right? Which was kind of surprising to me because there's some pretty uh, tough stuff in this movie. Yeah. Uh But I think it just reveals the ridiculousness of the rating system because it's like you can talk about horrible, harrowing war experiences and get a G rating, but you just can't show. Stuff. This could have been an R-rated movie. Yeah. It, like, it, it's so bizarre to me because, like, yeah, it's so wholesome and beautiful and everybody should see it. And there's no, I think the worst swear is, like, someone says, God damn it, or something in the beginning, right? And, like, nobody gets shot in the head. And, like, the, the way that the ratings board decides the, I mean, we talked about this with, with uh, South Park because that, you know, that's an example of how the ratings board was sort of, like, challenged right uh intentionally it's it's crazy to me that like i mean i'm not i'm not like begrudging the fact that it's rated g no but it should be like what does that mean right like because there's basically no movies are rated g anymore unless it's like a cartoon thing that is explicitly made for four-year-olds the fact that there's like a movie for adults ever made that's rated g especially in the era where pg-13 is a thing like i know that like pre like 83 or whatever like when goonies and jaws and raiders were all pg and people like we need to do something because this is not okay but like to have the complete flexibility it's just like this is this is goofy like it's not (laughs) i think what's also strange about it in like a good way maybe not a good way an interesting way is that like so much like going into and i think this is something that like a lot of the critics were reckoning with when something happens like when the pregnant teenager on the run sits down with him at the campfire you're like oh this is gonna break bad this could go this could be dark in so many different ways and it is the most wholesome pure Mm -hmm. interaction Mm -hmm. ever on screen but like your brain is like seeing a film old man young woman pregnant woman vulnerable woman david lynch film you're filling in the gaps but like what's on screen there's nothing wrong yeah the toughest he ever gets with her is eat your dinner missy yeah yeah <laughs> and then he wakes up and you're like oh did she rob him did you take something yeah no she nope. just said i'm going back to my family with like the little bundle i'm getting choked up like it's just so <laughs> it's so sweet it's so wonderful it is and i think also like in addition to the 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 sort of absurdity of the whole ratings system and how that's kind of exposed here i also was watching it being like you know other people could just also make g-rated movies yeah. like this is still really great and you don't have to not like whatever you can make an awesome, great, amazing Mm -hmm. movie that's rated G that like literally anybody could watch. Although not everybody, it certainly is not a movie like for everybody. I don't think this is a, you know, crowd pleaser (laughs) of of a film, at least not in the traditional sense, but um, it is, it is not, 
it doesn't like there's nothing offensive about it was like nobody talks about politics even like there's nothing about it that anybody would like be turned off by he drinks responsibly he has one miller's light (laughs) miller's light one miller's light how's your miller's (laughs) light it's pretty good it's pretty good um so julia when i was mentioning that in rewatching this there, I, that, hey, John, did you see this for the first time in '99? Where did you, you you didn't see this? I'm I'm guessing it was like New York and LA, and maybe like widely for like a brief. No, I didn't see it in the theater. I definitely did see it within the year of it coming out, like on at like Blockbuster or something, like a rental. Yeah, I mean, like one of my film nerd friends definitely gotcha, like okay. had us watch this, and I wanted to when it came out, um, because I you know um am of an age where I saw End of Green Gables when I was a kid, and so, you know, already... I was Julia hoping, just lit up. I was hoping <laughs> this would come up. I didn't already know if I, as the only it. woman, would have to mention it or not, but... Well, go, let's let's go go ahead. Tell us about your your big crush on... Old man crush on, on Richard Farnsworth because of End of Green Gables. I think it was like a, I was a little too young to get into older men at that <laughs> stage. <laughs> But um, yeah, he he in the Anne of Green Gables um, miniseries, which I think is dear to many people of all genders, it would seem of a certain age. Mm-hmm. He plays cousin Matthew mm-hmm. and guardian, who's also a man of, of few words, but mm-hmm. many emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only thing I've really I mean, I'm sure I've seen him as a stuntman and things I didn't know he was a stuntman in. But I, the only thing I'd seen him in before this was that and then he was in this and then he died so um yeah it was it was but no i was very and i love sissy spacek as well and of course i love harry dean stanton but he's you know like it's crazy that he's in like he's in a red river which came out in 1948 like he's he had a, he had a life <laughs> yes. you know what i mean like he's uncredited he's like a writer but like he was in misery he was in gone with the wind as a soldier yeah yeah like this dude he had a life was born in 1920, died in 2000, was acting from at least the time he was, you know, 18, 19. Like, that is, like, I could have gone deeper into him, but I'm, you know, it's, but man, I'm just, I'm so glad, like, I, I it's very sad that he died and, like, had to, like, you know, probably had a very painful film experience of this, but, like, I'm so glad that he was able to do, to cap, that they could capture the performance that he did, because, like, it looks like he's a man who might not make it to see his brother, and, like, it seems yeah. like that's really, you know, what he was going with. And then for like to think, I was also thinking about like Harry Dean Stanton, like, you know, he looks old and alien, which is 20 years earlier. And then he's still like in like, the, I, like I remember he was <laughs> Harry in like, Dean you know, Stanton I, was old his entire fucking know, life. And like, like, he was but never I mean, not. He's, yeah, he's still alive and acting for another 15 or 20 years past that, too. You know what I mean? It's just like this guy was always old. <laughs> and like just the, their reunion, like he's third. I don't know, man. I just love it. I guess it's wonderful. <laughs> it's, 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 it's I great. mean, that ending is incredible. Yeah, well, so let's talk about the ending a little bit later. I I want to I want to dwell on that for for a few minutes. Um, but so so Julia, like, why? What do you see in this movie now as like far more consistent with Lynch and his kind of um, experimental, weirdy sort of uh, aesthetic that you didn't see before? Well, I think I I remember him saying it's his most experimental movie. Yes. And I think that that's like, we should take that literally. Like it was an experiment for him to see if he could take this, uh, you know, straight material and, and um, find himself in it. And I think it's, 
it's very sneaky because it looks like this uncut, straightforward piece of Americana. You have this like wide open plains and the swirling shots of the harvesting and all that. But it's still like David Lynch's America to me. Like it's Mm -hmm. very, there is a bit of Twin Peaks, like what Twin Peaks is doing for the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. This movie is doing for the Midwest, I think. (laughs) Like um, it's just a little off. It's a little uncanny in a way. Um, Yeah. And I actually think that if there wasn't that Lynchian aspect to it, it would not, it would just be too saccharine to be the incredible movie it is. I think that beginning where Alvin collapses and we have like the view of Dorothy, the neighbor with her tanning and her snowballs and her potato chips. And um, living the dream, living the goddamn (laughs) dream out there. (laughs) And then the, the camera moves slowly and into the window. And then we just hear Alvin collapse. You know, that feels very Lynchian to me and that mm-hmm. like we're discovering the the strangeness and the darkness yeah. uh, within this um, uh, placid Midwestern exterior. And then I just think, you know, they're just, they're just so many oddballs in the movie <laughs> that, um, you know, like it's just these people are are just like a little old warped <laughs> by living the lives they're living, and I think that's where the Lynch stuff really comes out for me. I think what's nice is that when when he also kind of subverts it when when you see Alvin when they go in to check on him, like his old man friends at the bar, like I'm gonna go take a look, and they like walk over to the house and they walk inside, and he's just lying on the floor, like he doesn't look like he's in pain, yeah. he's just lying there. Yeah. And then he goes to the doctor, he's like, I'm not doing any of that. Like it just. It's so peacefully, but you're like, oh no, like, is he going to be dead? Like, is this, are we watching Harry Dean Stanton? Because you know, it's about like a, a man visiting his brother. It's like, no, he, he also is, you know, not right or whatever. Um, but like, I like that, you know, Big Ed is here just like also, you know, as, as the John Deere salesman, just like the most upstanding sales guy. Like, there's just things that like, you know, like Julie saying, like our Twin Peaksy, yeah. he's reminding like, this is the guy and things are a little bit weird and the naturalistic in a way that isn't quite natural, but is also like hyper natural. And then it also is so filmic. Like it's just everything about this is just so wonderfully specifically him in a way that I think was the word you used, Julie, like saccharine, like without, without his darkness, it would not come off or like perceived darkness or like he almost can't help. I don't know what it is, but like it is, it's working. Yeah, I, I also th- so so like the 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 opening scene, like the ways that I think obviously you're dealing with a true story framework for the most part, right? So you can't really veer too far from that. So Lynch has sort of boxed himself in in terms of what he can and can't do uh, to sort of David Lynch up this story. Um, but in terms of going to some his his kind of his kind of toolbox, I think it's pretty interesting, right? So like the beginning scene strikes me as sort of a very kind of soft resurrection scene where he's like, this is his sort of afterlife kind of, right? Where he's sort of like living out his final days. He goes to the doctor and he's like, fuck it, I don't need any of that stuff, right? I'm just just give me two, give me two canes instead of a walker. Um, I'm going to make it there on my own terms, right? There's this sense of like, he's reborn for 
you know, however few months this is, so we can go see his, his brother, right? And I think that's sort of alluded to without being um, overt and without taking you away from the sort of hyper-realism of the movie. But I also agree, Julia, that like one of the things in watching it this time around that I noticed more or sort of like I was more receptive to is a lot of those scenes of him kind of out there in the Midwest countryside, there is a sort of like weird eeriness and a weird sort of almost like threatening element to it that, that is both like beautiful and comforting, but at the same time, like alienating and strange. And I don't know how he pulls that off. I know there's a lot of like really ab- abrupt cuts in this movie too, that kind of give it that sort of sense of, of um, being kind of disconnected that, that, I guess like any other filmmaker trying to work in this kind of like cinema verite right style here, I don't think would be able to like put their own finesse on it the way that he does, which is what I think is so sort of wonderful about this movie is that it is still very weird while also being like incredibly beautiful and moving and real. It's like about real people. There's at the end, like there's also things like not just the cuts, but there's like scenes where you feel like you're not supposed to be there. Like when his tractor breaks down like a mile or whatever from his brother's house. Yeah. And then like the camera's pretty far away and the guy in the big tractor, like the industrial size tractor stops next to him. Yeah. And like you can barely hear their conversation. And it's like, are we supposed to be watching this? Like you almost think like, did they met? Did they edit in the wrong shot? But like, it also doesn't (laughs) matter. Like you don't need to hear it all to know like what's going on. And it's just like, hey, did you try turning it off and turning it back on? Basically, he does, and it's fine, (laughs) right? But like, there's stuff where just like, we're we're just we're literally along for the ride. And then there's scenes where it's like, the tractor dies after his friends are like, it's not going to make it past the grotto, and he gets towed back into town. They're like, well, that's the end. And then he gets a shotgun. You're like, is this is this guy going to kill himself in a G-rated movie? Twenty five minutes in, and then he just blows up the tractor and buys a new one. And like, there's just these weird, you're just there. Like you're just (laughs) following this man, no matter what it takes, no matter how many times it false starts or whatever. Yeah. You're going to follow him all the way to Wisconsin. Yeah. I I find myself being sort of like, should I even ask myself the question of what this movie is about? Or is that not the point? Is it, is it about, is it about nothing? Um, Julia, you're, you're more of a, um, someone who who dissects and analyzes cinema uh more sort of academically than we do so what do you think of that question is there a thesis to this movie beyond here's what happened to this normal guy and it's pretty it's pretty moving well the thing that i that i got stuck on like i was thinking about that meme of like what will men do before they go to therapy (laughs) 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 it's like man will ride a mower 370 miles but i also felt like that wasn't quite right because um (laughs) like he's very you know we're we're set up to see him as this like taciturn stubborn old codger who like won't listen to anybody won't do anything but then once he's out on the road He's just so emotionally open mm-hmm. and, um, um, uh, you know, you know, sort of like giving and receptive to all the people he meets on the road, uh, except the woman who keeps hitting the deer. Um, and 
I think he, you know, like this notion that he he keeps insisting, I have to do this my way. I have to make it on the mower. Um, I think what he says towards the end is like, this whole trip is a hard swallow on my pride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like, you know, like it has to be done this way for redemption, you know, for the the forgiveness of his sins, maybe even. And yeah. like, for uh for forgiveness to be able to happen because we see multiple people offer him rides you know sissy's basic is like coming up with different alternatives like how to get there by bus or like at least get most of the way there by bus but i think that's right like he has to do like it's you know john as a religious studies professor teacher i'm sure you could come up with some kind of extended (laughs) metaphor here about you know you, you mentioned the rebirth like this is like a you know road to Damascus is that a thing? That's probably not the That's metaphor a thing. I want. That's is a that the, thing. Is that the metaphor I want? Yeah, you could sure. Sweet. Uh, Jericho Nailed Road, uh, Good Samaritan stuff. Yeah, that's. But, that's, but I think Julian's point is right. Like he has to do it this way, otherwise, he won't feel like he earned the redemption. Even though I'm sure, in reality, if he shows up three months earlier, his brother's going to be just as happy to see him. Right. Well, there's just something so magical to me about the way. I'm sorry, I'm going to the ending again, but the way Harry Dean. <laughs> we, can way Harry Dean we can get there in a second. Yeah. <laughs> the way Harry Dean Stanton looks at that mower and that trailer. Yeah. yeah. And he knows, you see it in his eyes, he knows that's how Alvin got there. And that's what moves him. And that kind of is what makes, you know, forgiveness or reconciliation happen. Mm hmm. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. And he knows, like, if, if he shows up in a car because someone he met along the way offered him a ride the rest of the way, then that doesn't work, right? He, like, that visual image, the, 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 the knowledge that his brother has of what he went through to get to him and his stubbornness, like, which is what apparently led to their falling out in the first place, being the thing that sort of, you know, gets him back to him right i think it's really really important the other thing that i was thinking of this time watching it is the the sort of real um the conversations that he has with random strangers because he goes the long way because he goes on Mm -hmm. this on this lawnmower and because he doesn't take rides and like skip to the ending uh we learn what it is he's actually confronting and, 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 you know, we learn about his daughter and what happened to her. And we learn about what he did in world war two and how these things are sort of, you know, eating him up. And, and, and that sort of gives some sort of like validation to this very idea beyond it being a sort of local interest story gimmick that it kind of was when the story was reported, when it really happened, right. It sort of says, well, there's something to slowing down and doing things the hard way, right? Sort of slowly on a on a riding mower, <laughs> as opposed to um, taking a ride from a well-meaning stranger, right, to make it easier on you. Um, it's not just like suffering. It is not just something that you should do to you know redeem yourself. Like there's actually some sort of real benefit to it, right, in terms of like dealing with it and. Um, and moving on and in that light right that's why i love the ending <laughs> so you can talk about the ending now so julia why is the ending so great well it's just 
Can I first say on a lighter note, it's just such a baller move to just have Harry Dean Stanton For in two this lines. one. Yeah, yeah. This one scene at the end. Yeah. But I think it's just um yeah, just the way that they they look at each other, you know, and the it's just like two fantastic actors, you know, like mm. looking at each other and the way so much gets resolved just on their faces. And, and, you know, then they're like, he's on his two canes, Lyle's on his walker. And he just says, you know, sit down. And then we go, you know, to infinity and to the stars, which is what, what he wanted, right? He wanted to see the stars with his brother again, like they did in childhood. And it's just, so economical and such, you know, almost minute acting, but just says everything we need to know, gives us everything we need for this mm -hmm. journey to be complete. Yeah, if anybody ever deserved a Best Supporting Actor nomination for the two and a half or three minutes or whatever it is that he is on screen and the three lines that he utters, it's Harry Dean Stanton, who just in that, like, the way that he... <laughs> Just the way that he looks around and the way that he like carefully and meticulously utters those lines is just uh, an, an acting masterclass. Uh, he fucking ruled. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like they could have hugged in a different movie. They could have been like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. And then you're like, oh, yay. Mission accomplished. But also, it feels like they've they've never been huggers, right? Like, <laughs> those dudes have never once hugged yeah. each other. Yeah. Can we talk about speaking of? Uh, I don't know if I want to say acting masterclasses, but I want to talk about Sissy Spacek and yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether I don't want to bring the twenty twenty three of it all into it, but like, is it problematic that she's playing an intellectually disabled person, or like? Because I think that what she, like I think what one thing this movie does that's really really effective that no other movie seems to do is like the scenes of both of them separately together just staring out windows and thinking and like nothing it's just like and then you you hear her story like I think it's when he's talking to the young pregnant woman and like he's talking about how his wife you know birthed fourteen children and seven of them survived now he has sissy and she lost all four kids because like when someone else was watching them you know all that like all the tragedy all the heartbreak. And then you cut to her and just staring out the window, not moving, just like, oh, my God. And, like, she's doing such a great thing, and she's so funny with just, like, the way that she's, like, interacting with the woman at the grocery store and the woman at, you know, at the dining room table when he walks through with a shotgun and, like, all these different moments. And then you're, like, again, maybe it's the modern lens. It's, like, should she be playing this role? Is that okay? And I just, I think she's really good in this and I like her, but I'm just, I, there's a part of me that just makes me at least want to have the conversation. Like, what do we think of this? Well, I will say in defense of her performance, um, like I didn't even realize we were meant to read her as intellectually disabled until that scene in the grocery store where she doesn't understand mm -hmm. who's having a party. Like I before that, I just thought that she, you know, had a stammer and was maybe somewhere on the spectrum. So I do think it's played quite subtly, and then you know conforms to uh, Alvin's recounting later that she's a good mother, that she's you know capable of having children and uh, raising children and taking care of him and everything. And I do think there's this. She delivers the lines with the stammer. But mm -hmm. what comes afterwards is always a face that is so perceptive and so intelligent 
that the nuances of the acting really make you feel that this woman um, is really capable and does really have a rich uh, inner life, you know? So that's what I would say in favor of it. Would we do it today? Probably not. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know that we, I don't know that we wouldn't. I mean, I think this movie is also very careful and precise in exactly the same ways that you're saying, Julia, in also not specifying what her issue is um, because it could just be a stutter, <laughs> right? Uh, it's not, I am Sam. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't like say like, here's Sean Penn as someone with this condition. And it, it's not, it doesn't do that. So it just sort of lets the character be, it doesn't dwell on it. It only gets acknowledged really once um, when he's, when he's telling uh, the girl at the campfire, right, about her. And otherwise, it just sort of is her character. So I think if you're going to, like, do this responsibly and just sort of say, like, it's just the character that she's playing and that's who the character is, then, you know, I, yeah, I don't know that we would have... I, I, I certainly do have like, had exactly the same thoughts, right, as I was watching it again. Like, um, would would this fly today? But... Um, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know. It's it's such a... I mean, Sissy Spacek is like... How can you fuck with Sissy Spacek? You know, like it's she's she's amazing, uh, and and she can do whatever. But I just think it's it's handled so um, um, respectfully, right, on all on all parts that I would I just would, I don't know. Maybe someone does have a problem with it, but I, I'd really struggle to see what that is. Right? It's no, not, I'm like I'm not trying to bring it up to like say that I didn't Twank, like it or that Argentina. I'm offended on someone else's behalf or whatever. Yeah. I'm just. Yeah. No, I know. You know I this yeah. is this is the era. You know, you mentioned the boys don't cry, and like, there's so many different things from this this season or this this year of movies, and you know, different seasons that you know. Yeah. The Dane Cook performances in Simon's Head is way more <laughs> offensive than this for different reasons altogether, right? But like, I don't know. It's just it's it's something of the era where like it's something that you know would it be done today? Maybe probably not. Yeah. Maybe differently. Who knows? But again, like for a movie that basically has one dude you're following and then she's in you know a handful of like really big scenes and there's Hardy and Stanton and he just kind of comes and goes and like who he meets along the way you know she's second build and she's got a big presence and she's she's great at what she does it's just you know sort of a, a very specific choice I've struggled with this a lot or thought about it a lot and I think like it is possible to look back and still say there is um care and uh value and thoughtfulness in this performance uh while also saying you know let's not do that anymore i think like i think it's possible to to hold both ideas in our mind do do you think that so one of the weird things about this movie is of course that like farnsworth was dying throughout it um and died shortly after it was released and and like do you think that that factors into this movie's legacy or even like its power now like that that strange coincidence because i don't think anybody like it didn't come as a surprise to anybody i think pretty much everybody on set seemed to know that he was really struggling and and was deteriorating as the as the movie went on but like it 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 feels kind of icky to me to, to sort of love the movie more because he died immediately after it came out right and there's this kind of like I mean, it's similar to the Sissy Spacek conversation. This like ethics of 
how you go about enjoying a movie. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, we can't take it out of our minds. You know, once we know, we know. And I think, you know, we, we bring our knowledge into a movie. So I think we can't avoid it. And I think, um, you know, um, I think we do see deterioration in Alvin as he goes along on his trip. Um, and I think, I think what we see is a, a man who may not have much time left really opening up about his life. And, uh, you know, we go through thinking, oh, here's this like loony old coot to like, this man has lived. And, um, and he just gets more and more open about that. And I think, um, I mean, those are the most beautiful moments in the movie, really. Mm -hmm. They just get his, his confessions or his conversations just get more and more intense and beautifully performed. And I think, you know, um, how can you not, um, how can you not feel it more intensely with that knowledge? And I think there's something to be said about the shooting in chronological order, which I don't know if they did that for that reason. I don't know if they did it for just because they shot it along the route and like, it doesn't make sense to go back and shoot things <laughs> different. Like there's any number of reasons that like you yeah. do it for that reason, which I know that most movies aren't shot that way, but to see like what Julia was saying, like you see a man sort of deteriorating, like doesn't have much time left. Like the, the, the farther along into the movie you get the literally the, the less time that the, both the character and the actor has, it's just, it's profoundly heartbreaking, but it, you know, you cast an old man, not that, you know, every 80 year old is going to die immediately, but like, you know, you, you watch a movie that's, this movie's 25 years old, right? So or almost. And so you, you see like a lot of, you see old people, you're like, mm, you know, time, I don't know. Julia, where would you rank this now? I mean, I, I, you, you alluded to in your college days, writing it off is not, not cool enough in the david lynch pantheon um where would you rank it now in your in your tower of david lynch um i still don't know if, if there's a if there's a fire i don't know you know if i don't know if i'm saving this over blue velvet or lost highway uh still but i do think it's just like a, a beautiful little masterpiece and i i have i have a lot of love for those kind of more that kind of movie you know the auteur doing something smaller or something simpler and like yeah. what we understand about the auteur through uh the director going this different route and what i what i will say i'm, I'm bad at doing these ranking things but um what i will say is like i have a great fondness for the elephant man mm. and you know the elephant man is still a weirder movie just because of what it's about mm -hmm. But I think they're both very similar movies in the sense that they're they're less um, I, let's call it surreal. You know, they're more like standard narrative films that are based on kind of like really strong, um, more or less realist acting performances. Yeah. And I think it's like I think it's really great and speaks to Lynch's talent that that those movies. Um, are so great and are, as we were saying, like still quite Lynchian in their own subversive ways. I think I got a much deeper appreciation for the way that Battle of Menti, um factors in to like the Lynch 
aesthetic watching this movie, right? Because like the beginning music is very sort of it's very it's very Twin Peaks, <laughs> you know, like the music in the beginning, and then it goes into like the very sort of pastoral kind of like Jay Unger like fiddle music thing happening, and um, and it really sort of it sort of grounds you in that sort of like Lynchian world where, where the music drives so much of what's happening and so much of the mood and like, and you realize how sort of important Lynch's collaborators are to him, which is like, I think to me, one of the other really powerful things about this movie is it really made me think about this sort of team of people he'd worked with mm-hmm. and him, you know, you saying how, um, what's his writer's name? Um, Mary Sweeney. Mary Sweeney. How, 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 this was sort of like her inspiration. Like she was the one who sort of latched onto this and he was like, yeah, I'll do that. Right. Because like we work together and we're a team and like, this is creatively what we do. And like, I think that's really, really cool. Like there's something very sort of revealing about his humility as someone who is known for kind of being an auteur, right. Who has a very like distinct style and vision. Um, And that's like, again, that's something I kind of got out this time around that I don't think I appreciated uh 20 24 years ago is this your favorite david lynch film did you say that do you know do you have a favorite do you have a favorite i think so uh, yeah i think it has to be um again i like lost highway a lot as well um and i like fire walk with me just because it's twin peaks but like yeah i think this is the one that i would like watch willingly the most <laughs> you In know this fire that julia's threatening us with you would say this movie <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's the one I'd save in the fire um, because I could I could watch this a lot and yeah. and and uh, and everything else is like a challenge, right? And like that's not a bad thing necessarily, but like you know, Mulholland Drive is not like, hey guys, it's Friday night, let's throw on some Mulholland Drive. And, well, you know, you know, depends on how you want to spend your Friday night. That's 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 fair enough. I I do think that like for as much as like people are like, oh, that's so lynchy, and like that 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 adjective is used both like as like a a misnomer and like as a pejorative and like all whatever and like you know people yeah. even use it who love him like don't necessarily use it right whatever like i'm probably using it wrong too but like <laughs> i think that there's there's something to be said about like th- this is definitely an outlier in his career but like he's done like four or five different movies that are like he hasn't done that again like he hasn't done dune again he hasn't done elephant man again like julia was saying he hasn't really done like there's a reason he hasn't done dune again <laughs> well yeah but i mean like wild at heart is you know a straightforward yeah, yeah, yeah. wizard of oz adaptation right like and i mean sort and not okay not straightforward and not really a wizard of oz adaptation <laughs> but like you know within the realm of both of those adjectives right but otherwise like, all the things you just said but like you think you're like oh like, man like mulholland drive and lost highway and then the Empire, they're so weird and she's like yeah but like there's other stuff he's done and for someone who's only, you know, there's such a big deal made about like, well, what's Tarantino's thing? I would give all of Tarantino's movies up if we had like one more David Lynch. That maybe that's an exaggeration, but like, I want one more thing. Like when he came back with Twin Peaks: The Return, and like the entirety of that doesn't work for me. But the fact that he was like, I'm going to direct 16 hours of television, and it's going to be like supremely dark and weird and there's going to be musical numbers and there's going to be an entire like the weirdest hour of television you've ever seen in your life and like showtime's not going to say no it's like yeah yeah let's do it like that's awesome Hell yeah. and whatever he's doing i just hope that he's happy i would love another movie i don't know if we're ever going to get another. it's been 17 years since inland empire so i don't know man but what a treasure what an absolute delight I do think it's interesting that both of our weird Davids uh, released movies this year, and one is very much consistent with his work, and the other is this. So, you know, 
the other being mm-hmm. David Cronenberg. <laughs> oh, well, there's another weird David. I mean, maybe not weird David, but another David who's very particular about his work that also had a movie this year. David Fincher. Oh, yeah, that's true. And he's also pretty Oop. consistent. The Weird Davids. The Weird out, Davids. But not work in 99. Julie, do you have a favorite Weird David? <laughs> I don't know. Like if Who are you saving in a fire? It's, Cronenberg, it's, Fincher, or Lynch? <laughs> I guess Cronenberg if you're making me choose, but it's really hard between. Okay. Really? You pick Cronenberg? Yeah, because I mean, I. He's got a volume the other two guys don't have. Like, there's more. That's true. But just like, I like the brood, I I can't live without the brood. Really? I haven't seen the brood. One of his movies is Crash, it. a movie I despise with all of my with all of I my. I just heart bought that because it's the Criterion Collection at the Barnes and Noble, which I have not seen that either yet. Like, there's I, <laughs> I feel like I hadn't seen any of his movies until like four years ago, and I'm like, this guy is pretty good at making stuff. <laughs> boy, oh boy, he sure is. Um, no, I think, I think this. Uh, man, I just. I don't know. I, I just love this movie. Like I didn't take any notes on this. <laughs> I, I. This is a movie that I think you were saying. Like I. I could watch all of his movies a lot, but this is the one that I just. Like it feels like a treat. Like the other ones feel like this is special, but this is just like this is something unique and special and different and a joy and a present and a gift. Julie, I have a question for you. If if. People, if this is someone's like first David Lynch movie, right? <laughs> and they're like, I'm going to go check out the rest of his work. Uh, <laughs> I really liked that. In terms of like the sort of humanity and pathos that he brings to this movie, right? Wh- like wh- where where do you think is like the next logical place that a person should go if they're going to like start going down the David Lynch express? I think maybe... Blue Velvet, because I think like um, you uh, you transition from this idea that there's like this uh, there's this kind of wackiness about Midwestern suburbia, and then you go into this idea that there is this like horrible, weird, dark stuff underneath the like yeah. American dream of suburbia. So I think that makes a good transition. I don't know about how like people feel, but um, that would be my choice. I gotta watch that again. That's that's one that when I rewatch, like I think that I don't I don't know how to describe. I I, I want to I don't even want to insult it in like the setup to the payoff of like how talking about how good it is, but I feel like that's one that you it's easy to take for granted a little bit. Yeah, and I think that there were movies that he was more ambitious with, and that were maybe objectively better or whatever. And then you watch that and you're like, well, this guy has like only been making features for like six or seven years by this point. And it's so good. Like, it's ridiculously good. Yeah. And it's like, how was he this good this quick? Like, it's bananas. So I think that's a very good. I like that pick, Julie. I think that's a nice from this to that. Get real weird. Real, real weird. In a hurry. I, I also like we haven't really talked about this. I'm just going to add this. Like <laughs> the other the other sort of like lynchian element to this movie that i i kind of picked up on this time is that it's almost like aggressively normal the way that people talk because like my favorite line is like (laughs) what do you need the grabber for for grabbing (laughs) perfect movie 
I wish the one thing I wish he doesn't grab enough stuff with the grabber. Like he we doesn't, don't really see he him doesn't. use the grabber. No like, it's there. Chekhov's would, grabber, and it kind of fails in that. It regard. would be it would be sort of a gimmick if he did, right? It would almost be like a betrayal of the whole movie's idea if he if he if he did. The but. thing I love is that the guy at the hardware store is just like so sad to be relinquishing <laughs> his grabber. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. It's so it's hard. A damn to get good this grabber. <laughs> and he kind of like lovingly caresses it as he hands it over to Alvin. It's just, it's, that's one of the great scenes. Kids in the, in the like pre, like post Amazon era wouldn't understand that that's, that's, you know, you can't just get another grabber tomorrow. You gotta... it, did, it did remind me kind of of like a fantasy baseball trade where you're like negotiating <laughs> a trade and then you make an offer and they say yes. And you're like, oh, but I didn't really want it. He's just like, yeah, I don't know, $10. He's like, all right, ring it up. I'm like, oh, I didn't want to sell it. Why did I say 10? Oh, I think in like a, 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 the other like broadly kind of subversive thing about this movie is that it sort of shows that you can make an interesting movie that's not really about anything or very well structured about like people talking like normal people and just being normal people. And like normal people are like really fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. And have stories to tell. And if you just like sit and listen to them, then it can be really interesting. Like it doesn't feel like this movie was even written. It just kind of feels like people are just chatting and it's, and it's, and I know they, they're not. Do we have in that regard, you just reminded me of another movie and I'm wondering, do we have a Mount Rushmore of weird Midwestern films from this year? Cause it's obviously this (laughs) and your beloved American movie and also drop dead gorgeous. Yep. Yeah. Do we have a fourth Midwestern weird people just as they are? Love them or leave them. I don't. I don't know. Probably somewhere in the pipeline. Is it has to be ninety nine? Yeah, for yeah. the podcast specifically, because I mean, there's 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 lots of movies that are like to this, complete, but I feel like complete the <laughs> to have three that are that good that are Mount that Rushmore. kind of similar. Yeah, I'm sure BJ could give us this answer immediately, just like off the top of her head. I mean, but... Jawbreaker. Where's Jawbreaker? Says is that California or is that yeah, not? That's not the Midwest. That's not. No. I mean, there's a wild, wild Midwest. <laughs> no, we don't have four. We have three right now. So we're looking for that fourth. We're looking for the fourth. Yeah, we will. We will keep an eye out for the fourth. I mean, American Pie takes place in sort of the Midwest. Well, Michigan, that's not the Midwest. Whatever. It's the Rust Belt. Well, yeah. maybe maybe when we get to Detroit Rock City, maybe that'll fit. Oh, there you go. There but, you go. Uh, not, not yet. Not yet. That not would. for a couple seasons, at least. But. <laughs> to have three movies. That, and the beautiful thing, like those three are not similar. They're yeah. not at all the same. But when you're yeah. talking about like, not again, not as a negative, like poorly structured people just talking like that's American movie. They're just like, look at these like weird Midwestern dudes talking about making a movie. Yeah. And that's the movie. Yeah. I also think like, and we, we briefly touched on this, but I have to say this, that like the bartender is also like straight out of a David Lynch, like Twin Peaks. Like the way that guy looks, I'm like, was that guy in Twin Peaks? And I looked at his IMDb and I'm like, oh no, he's nothing. Yeah. He's in this movie and like we- an episode of like, er <laughs> we watch him slowly it. shuffle over to give that other guy a refill of coffee and there's no payoff we just yeah. watch like for about 15 or 20 seconds he walks the other end of the bar and <laughs> takes drop, care of that guy and we go back dropping and a twin was... peaks guy into your movie i thought it was yeah mm-hmm. uh, that was he definitely was had that look he did <laughs> he's like very creepy looking and it's like yeah. Lynch is like i love you you're perfect for a bartender come give him a miller's a miller's, miller's light. light what flavor What's a Miller's Light taste like? Julia, any 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 final thoughts on this movie before we wrap up on with our final questions? Yeah, I mean, like, I could just talk about Farnsworth's performance forever. But because, you, yeah. you know, just like I'm a sucker for any grizzled man with white hair, with blue eyes, slowly welling with tears. But, 
um, uh, like just, I think this is just like a kind of performance that's like underrated and like really kind of difficult to do where you just, you have these scenes that build on each other and you have to kind of like develop the character and reveal more of the character while him still staying, you know, like Alvin straight and, you know, uh, but just, um, he's just pitch perfect. And, you know, like he, he, he delivers those Midwestern lines totally straight, but it's all on his face and the eye movement and just how he, how he shifts or turns his head. It's just like, it's just an incredible piece of acting. And I just <laughs> could talk about it more, but. His ability uh, to almost cry, but not cry. Yeah. And just. It, man, yeah. it is heartbreaking. It's beautiful. To be clear, like this is one of the great acting performances on film ever. Like, period. And it was also a movie that made me um, uh, resent American Beauty even more than I did before rewatching it. Um, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck were people thinking? <laughs> man, yeah. we're all suckered in by that plastic bag. <laughs> and that goddamn Thomas Newman score, I'm telling you. It's all about yeah. the fucking Thomas Although, Newman score. That- there's also Russell Crowe for The Insider. Oh God! Well, we haven't even gotten to well, the insider so that's yet. That's the thing. When I was looking, Julia, I was saying in the intro that I keep for like six or seven months of this podcast, I could not remember the premise of the podcast. Which <laughs> we're only watching movies from one year. Got that under my belt. Good, proud of myself. But I can't remember. And now I'm not remembering. Like when I'm like, oh, he was nominated for best actor. Like what else? Who else won? Who won that year? And I'm like, won oh, that year. Idiot. Oh, yeah. It's the same conversation Always. we have every single time. But of the five best actor nominees. We've only done Spacey and this. We, the other three we have not gotten to yet. So, like, there's still sort of big-ish, powerhouse-ish performances oh, out there, there that we have not yet gotten to. Because we've covered a lot of really good movies, but the things that the, the Academy was like, these are the best. Yeah, Jason Biggs was snubbed, um, <laughs> famously. Sure. Stifler, Stifler was snubbed. Uh, okay, Julia, you know it's coming. Um, so, first question what if not this movie is your favorite movie from the year 1999 you're allowed to say this one too that was a weird way of asking but you can say this movie if you want to say this movie uh impossible um obviously uh you know but um i'm going to say the one that i left off my list that uh when bright wall dark room was asking everybody to do their top five which is uh dick um (gasps) That's like yeah. the, almost the third, like we've had, that's the third time in like six episodes that someone said that. It's just incredible. It's like great alternate history concept. Yep. Great girl power, credible comic actors, uh, great costumes, great soundtrack. It's how I learned about Watergate. That's so good. <laughs> I think I, I first watched all the president's men, like because of Dick. And uh, now I'm a Watergate obsessive. And wait, wait, for, for for context, how old were you in 1999? I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. So how old were you when Watergate happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, it's it's all down to Ms. Schoenfeld, our AP government teacher, who showed us Dick after we finished our exams. Oh, that was our that's treat. a good teacher. Yeah. Um, that's amazing but uh, as a now watergate obsessive uh i have to say dan hadaya absolutely the best richard nixon ever to grace the screen dan hadaya is like and i don't mean this like in the in the in a pejorative sense but like the like your next best option after harry dean stanton (laughs) 
for like most of the roles that he that he had. <laughs> you know, like, they they both are right in that same sort of like if you're a casting director, you go to Harry Dean Stanton first, and then you go to Dan Hedaya after I'm that. I'm trying but, to like, picture Harry Dean Stanton as Cher Horowitz's dad, and I'm having a really tough time, <laughs> but I'm trying it really hard. I love Dan Hedaya. I believe it's his birthday today. As we record, yeah. Oh my god, he is he is dead, right? I am not wrong about this. He is not. Oh dead. no, dead Hedaya is not dead. No. Oh, that's great. He was born today in 1940. There. So he's just super old. 83. I suppose that's not that old. No, that's great. I'm glad he's not dead. I really thought he was. There's so many people that, like, I swear, I just I think are dead and are not, and I'm pleased when they're not. So um, he was in two movies that came out two years ago. Harry Dean Stanton is dead, though, right? Yeah, he died a couple years ago. Okay. That's good. I mean, it's not good. It's not good. Julia, do you have a favorite movie of all time? No, that's my question. Uh, you, took, well, you, took, you took your sweet time. <laughs> <laughs> the one I usually answer, which I think is is fairly accurate, is Trouble in Paradise, which is an Ernst Lubitsch movie from 1932. Okay. Uh, it's about a couple of jewel thieves. And they plan this heist where the man is going to pose as the secretary of a young, rich woman to try a young, rich widow to try and steal her money and her jewels. Okay. But then, of course, you know, starts falling in love with her a little bit. So it's just like very sexy and witty and sly in a like pre-code way. And then you have the eternal question of can you love two people at once? Hmm. And well, when we what, do 1932, the podcast. What is the answer to that question of can you love two people at once, according to the to the film, anyways? I think uh, yes, but maybe one is better suited to your life and your oh. needs and like your it. love of jewels. Cool. Um, I've never seen it or heard of it, and uh, I will. I will have to now. It's just like sublime. It's like perfectly made there's like not a wrong note in it <laughs> i do like a good heist movie so julia i found you on letterbox but you don't really seem to use letterbox anymore do you or do you well i i actually it's more accurate to say like i never got the hang of letterbox mm. but i think you know with the dawn of x i'm definitely gonna shift over wonderful. more i'm gonna follow you you don't have to follow me back but i'm gonna follow you and i'm gonna keep tabs because i'm excited because i that's a kind of like it's the kind of thing where like when we did a Midsummer Night's Dream, and they were like, "What's?" I was like, "What's the best adaptation?" Like, this one from the '30s. I'm like, "I'm never gonna watch that movie. I can promise <laughs> you that." But the way that you talked about a movie from the '30s, like, I would watch that because I like a, I like a caper, I like a jewel. I, you know, I like all that kind of stuff. But like, I'm not watching a 1930s Shakespeare. Get out of here! What are, we, what are we even talking about? As a person who has a PhD in theater, like that one is overrated. It is overrated. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Now we, we got Hell yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting, but it's like, um, you can skip it. It's fine. Have you seen the 2016 version with uh, Rachel Lee Cook? 2016? Yeah. Rachel it's Summerized Dream. Yeah. No, like this is a film? It's really good. Oh, wow. Okay. It's like really, really, really good. Yeah. This, so Very who does funny. she play? Hermia. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you what the cast is. Do we have a good bottom? They have a really, really good bottom. So it's it's 2017. Okay. Um, it's set in modern day Los Angeles. Um, okay. So Rachel Lee Cook like... is Hermia. Uh, Paz de la Huerta is Hippolyta. Um, All Fran, right. Fran Kranz plays bottom, and he is fucking fantastic. Ted Levine is Theseus. Uh, Hamish Linklater plays Lysander. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's really, 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 really great. 
it's okay, very funny. It's very clever. Like they, they take a lot of liberties with adding some sort of like Shakespeare jokes in there. And like they use a lot of like text messaging as part of the drama. And like it's but it's it's very, very clever. Um, so this is and, a treat and, and to look forward better. to. And much better than the than the ninety nine version, but um, anyway, there's 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 my plug, uh, <laughs> um, Julia. We 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 already have like one. We we've done we've had three guests at the same time before, and it wasn't a complete nightmare. Uh, we already have one person who is on board for Dick. Um, but we'll say that get, a different way. When we get to, well, no, I like to say it that way. On board uh, for Dick. <laughs> on board for Dick. But when we get to Dick, which is going to be probably in a year or so. Um, uh be happy to have you join us for that one as well i would love that and you can share your love of that movie <laughs> i'm not gonna say it it's so like it's so tempting to make dick jokes because it's right there in the title and it's the um, whole movie it's, it's the whole movie it's... and the soundtrack kicks ass and like what a great movie uh easily the second best kirsten dunst movie of of that year maybe third virgin suicides is also that year anyways uh it's really great and it was great to have you thank you very very much and thank um, you and look out for frogs look out for frogs thanks julia thank, thank you julia you.